Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Graham Mabry at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Our topic today is the surrendered life. It continues with the road to contentment. Two old friends met, hadn't seen each other for ages, and one of them looked really downcast. So the other said to him, what's the matter, mate? And he said, oh, four weeks ago, a relative I didn't know I had passed away intestate. I'm the only living relative. I've inherited an estate from them. It's just, just a touch over a million dollars. And the guy said, and you're upset? And he said, oh, it doesn't end there. The week after that, I got a letter. When I opened it, it was from a trust that my grandfather set up. And I, I'd heard about it, but didn't know anything much about it. Well, it had matured, and they've paid me $250,000. And his friend said, hang on a minute. You got a million, just over a million four weeks ago. You got 250,000 the week after that. Why are you so downhearted? And he went, well, mate, the last two weeks, nothing. I got nothing. (laughs) Now, that's a bad joke, I know. But it does actually touch on a, a basic reality of our human condition that I found beautifully described in a proverb as I was getting ready this week. Here it is. Trying to satisfy the discontented is like trying to carry water in a sieve. Right? Trying to, isn't that brilliant? It's like trying to carry water in a sieve. Well, Dr. Seuss has a voice on this. He has a view. Dr. Seuss says, just tell yourself, ducky, you're really quite lucky. Wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy? Just tell yourself you're really quite lucky. Uh, I actually learned, after 20 years of getting nothing, suddenly Merle and I were asked to host a cruise on the Mediterranean because the person the the station had chosen couldn't do it. So it was a lovely gift from God. And I remember sitting at breakfast one morning with the Riviera sliding past the boat and this young man from the, uh, the Dominican Republic about to make me a great coffee and he said, are you having a good day? I said, if I'm not having a good day, I need professional help. Now that night, they had a big, I love big band, I wrote and arranged for it, played in one, I love it. And um, uh, the big band was playing that night and they flew players in from the United States, landed them in Europe, they played on the boat and they had it so that the, some of the time they were playing with film of the old big bands, the Dukes and the, and the Benny Goodman, all that. It was brilliant. And when I came out, there was a person from our group that we were hosting and I went, how good was that? It was like the Prime Minister. How good was was that and this person went well it was a bit loud and I couldn't stop myself I went it was a big band <laughs> four trumpets four trombones <laughs> and then she said well I like to join in and sing too and I thought well the karaoke was just around the corner it was just you know because it was it was karaoke do you know that person was never happy once in that entire cruise never once and I started to understand sometimes you, some people just can't be happy By contrast, Sister Ella Williams, the lovely Ella Williams, Sister Ella, who was a big part of Lifeline's early days and many of you would know of her and she went many times to, she's a very close friend of Mother Teresa. She not only worked with Teresa in Calcutta, but she went to the missionaries of charity in Ethiopia many times to the orphans there. And one of our Christmas sleepouts in Supreme Court Gardens, she had the governor and the premier... One of her boasts was she slept between the governor and the premier and she said, for a single lady of my age, that's an accomplishment, let me tell you. So um, she, she got all of us, and for the Africans who are present, I do apologise, but doing that sound of joy that they make, that la 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 that thing, you know, that uh, very badly we did it. But it was funny to see the governor doing that and dancing in this single file dance and it was the joy dance of the Ethiopian children. 
And the reason she got us to do it was she said, you know what? This is the dance these children did when they received a brand new packet of coloured pencils. And she said, I saw more joy in those children over a packet of pencils than many children in our culture. See, contentment has nothing to do with how much we have. It's like giving to Jesus. We just had our offering. If I haven't given what God asked me to, it's not because I don't have enough. It's because I don't trust enough. So contentment has nothing to do with what I've actually got. It goes, like all the topics in this series, to the deepest part of it. It's a spiritual issue. The major world religions all espouse contentment and many philosophers through history have done so. In fact, have a look at these. Let's start with one of the great philosophers of our time, Oprah Winfrey. Oprah says this, be thankful for what you have and you'll end up having more. If you're not thankful, if you concentrate on what you don't have, I'll start that again, sorry. Be thankful for what you have, you'll end up having more. If you concentrate on what you don't have, you'll never ever have enough. On the other end is Alfred Nobel, the man from the Nobel Prize. And of course, inventor of dynamite, left his huge fortune to most of it to this Nobel Prize that still continues. And he said this as an extremely wealthy man. He said, contentment is the only real wealth. The one in the middle is Socrates. And Socrates said this, he who is not contented with what he has will not be contented with what he'd like to have. One of the highest aspirations of the Stoics, another set of Greek philosophers, was contentment. They were very common in Paul's day and very common in Philippi, where our reading, the letter to the Philippians is where our reading comes from today. It was one of the highest aspirations for Stoics to have contentment. The the Greek word they used and Paul uses was autarkes. And what it means is self-sufficiency. Philippi was a very Roman town. A lot of them spoke Latin. And in Latin, the word for contentment means I carry everything I need myself. So wherever I go, I'm just carrying it with me. Um, In the Greek sense, the word meant that you're self-sufficient whatever the circumstances. I found a lovely phrase this week, a calm independence of circumstances. Well, what are Paul's circumstances? Well, he's in jail. Now, uh, the authorities can't agree, actually I could just end the sentence there, (laughs) because just about everything in the Bible the authorities can't agree. Uh, Scholars have different views, but most scholars think it was when he was in house arrest in Rome. But wherever he was in jail, he's definitely in jail. And Epaphroditus has brought him a gift from the Philippian church. It's a very generous church, and Paul is writing a thank you letter. For that gift. And that's where our reading comes from today in Philippians. And uh, Jeff Cooley is going to read it for us. Thank you, Jeff. Philippians 4 10 to 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Fantastic, thank you. I want to start at verse 11. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, in any and every situation. Key question this morning is, what is the road to contentment? 
And Paul would say, well, I happen to know. You can see there, as Nick pointed out to us last week, that the path doesn't, you don't quite see where it ends. But Paul says, actually, road to contentment, glad you asked, I know it. I've walked it. And it's different to the Stoics. See, the Stoics' way of having contentment was to, by an act of your will, deliberately deny the emotions. Start with something small. Let's say you have a cup that you loved and it smashes. Just be able to go, I don't care. It doesn't affect me. And then, by an act of human will, what they then wanted to do was eliminate emotions until you really didn't care what happened to you or anybody else, even your nearest and dearest. Now, if you succeed... In that way, your heart has become a desert. Our culture has a different approach. We talk about um, discontented people trying to to satisfy the discontented, carrying water in a sieve. Our whole broken human nature is discontented, isn't it? It's a part of our fallen condition. We become discontented with our jobs, with our marriages, with our homes, with our churches. And our culture uses this to drive the economy. So they tell us what we have to buy to look right or where we have to live to be right or what car we have to drive or what technology we have to own, what toys we have to have. The problem though is as our desires are met, they grow. (laughs) Doesn't stop, does it? Bono and you too had it right. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Another group in our culture says, no, 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 have less. Be a minimalist. Get off the rat race. Have a tree change or a sea change, but have less. Well, the gentleman by the name of Nicholas Gurka became a minimalist in 2012, and after seven years of that journey, he wrote an article recently, and he entitled it, Minimalism Will Not Make You Happier. And he said this, Many discover that to wake up and find you don't have to go to work, to wake up and find you don't have to go to work, it's not a great blessing. He said, You might be sitting in an empty house, but you may not like what happens once you're sitting in that empty house. So having more can't buy contentment and having less doesn't of itself deliver contentment. Paul, what do you say? And Paul would say, well, actually, I would say, I'm glad you raised it because both are essentially irrelevant. They're irrelevant. He says, I know how to get along and live humbly and I know how to live in abundance and prosperity. Let's take the first half of that. I know how to get along. I know what it is to be in need. We deliberately started last week with that amazing message from Nick about taking up your cross. And if you haven't heard it, do, do get onto our website, go to the, uh, the, uh, the podcast and have a listen to it. And we started deliberately with that because Jesus did say, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus did say to the rich young ruler, hey, hey guy, you don't have these possessions, they have you. So give those away and follow me. I'll provide for you. Trust me. So that's very much, it's a heartbeat. It's part of it. But for some Christians, that's all of it. In fact, it seems that they believe unless you're suffering, you're not spiritual. And they've actually got a missionary call to try to make sure that everybody around them suffers with them. I remember actually hearing, I was saying to Paul Hammond in, the, in between the services, I remember hearing somebody say once, this is a church meeting, we're not here to have fun. <laughs> now, it, it, it is a deep part of the call of God that we take up our cross. There is absolutely no doubt about that, but it's only half the story. 
Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. Paul knew the God of abundance and celebration. The, those of you who did, uh, in Women in the Word, did the book of Nehemiah will relate to this. As I was praying this week, that's, the story came to me of when the walls are built, the people all gather back in the city of God, and Ezra stands on a platform and opens the scriptures. And as Ezra opens the scripture, he praises God. And the people all raised their hands and said, Amen, Amen. So they clearly weren't Baptists. But they were there. And then, then as, he, as he prays, they fall to the ground in worship with their faces to the ground I read that this week in Nehemiah I thought my goodness I've got a way to go I've got a way to go to catch up to those Jews and hear back in God's hearing God's word in God's temple he then begins to read Ezra that is and Nehemiah and the Levites begin to explain to the people what it all means and the people begin to weep oh that's amazing so they worship they fall on the ground they weep then Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites go around and say, stop that, stop the weeping, rejoice. That's really amazing, isn't it? It's crazy. In fact, they say this, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Make this worship, not self-indulgence. Make sure everybody's included because God doesn't miss anyone. And do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not a time for weeping, this is a time. They were quoting from Deuteronomy, uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 14. Now I'm going to read Deuteronomy 14, just keep an eye on the person next to you. Can be, it could be such a shock to some, we may need the paddles to jerk them back to life. So just, just fasten your seatbelt. God says this to his people, buy whatever you like. Do you know what the King James says? Buy whatever thy soul lusteth after. Isn't that cool? Go and buy whatever your soul is lusting after. Need the paddles anyway? Well, it gets worse. Because he then gives them a shopping list. He says, now, go and buy cattle or sheep or wine or other fermented drink. My goodness. I don't know about this earlier. They're raising their hands. They're falling on the floor. They're weeping. They're talking about wine. We're in among the crazy people. No, we're in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 14. Anything you wish, now listen to this, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. He's saying, make this an act of worship. This is not an act of indulgence. Make it an act of worship and make it an act of love. Because he goes on and says, and make sure the Levites who have no inheritance and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns can come and eat and be satisfied. There are starving people out in our community. Ellen and Helen will give a chance for some of them to eat. Don't fail to invite them to the feast. Include them. Bring them into the abundance. And don't criticise their table manners when they come in to eat. Just love them. He says, bring, make sure they come and eat and be satisfied and the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands. See, for some of us, learning to be abundant is taking up our cross. It's more challenging to have, to have more than to have less. And having more is a challenging cross. See, Paul, let me talk about Jesus first. We talked about taking up your cross and Jesus, because of his wide and deep and long and high love, took up his cross, went to the cross. But he did not focus on the cross. 
and I am not a heretic. Hebrews tells us that. It says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And the joy set before him was you. He focused on his bride and he went to the cross. You see, that was his focus. Paul says, you know what, the Lord, he's writing to the Corinthians and he says, you know, the Lord gave me two things. First, he gave me such visions of heaven that humans are not even, I'm not allowed to tell you what I experienced. I had such lofty visions of, of heaven that not like John in the Revelation, I'm not allowed to tell you what I experienced. And then he goes on, because of these surpassingly great revelations, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me and torment me. See, God gave Paul visions and a thorn, but here's the point, Paul was defined by neither. Paul's contentment was defined by Jesus as he used both plenty and need. Paul could say, in plenty, I have God in everything. In lack, I find everything in God. The Stoics sought contentment through self-sufficiency, self-effort. For Paul, he wants to be God-sufficient. He wants to be self-sufficient through a new, reborn self. It's a gift of grace. He says it this way, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I'm ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses me with inner strength and confident peace. Excuse me. Through him who pours dunamis, dynamite power, into me. We easily skip over Paul's journey, so let me just try and ask you to see if you're in your imagination, just try and be in this place. I know it's very hard, but try. Paul loved the churches, gave himself endlessly for them. He said, he said I, I daily face the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He, was in, he tells us he was in constant danger, constantly on the move, often hungry, thirsty, cold, naked, without sleep. He was five times given, five times given 39 lashes. He was beaten with rods three times. He was pelted with stones. He was shipwrecked three times. He says, I was in danger on the land, I was in danger on the sea. Then he goes on trial for his life. And what happens? This is what I mean. I've tried this week to get myself into that dock where he was. I can't, but do the churches gather around and support and pray? No, after all that he's been through. He says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. At my first trial, everybody deserted me. May it not be laid to their charge. Then he says... But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. The Lord stood at my side. He says, in every situation, even that, I am content because he is with me. Paul had learned what David knew. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm going to lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm not going to lack anything. Thanks, David. He's saying that the Lord is my shepherd. He, it's the Lord who makes me. It's the Lord who leads me. I mean, I know you know the psalm off by heart probably, but let this sink in. It's the Lord who leads you. 
It's the Lord who makes you. It's the Lord who refreshes your soul. Nothing else will. It's the Lord who guides you. So even when we walk through the darkest valley, we fear no evil because he is with me. And notice, he walks through the valley. He doesn't live in the valley. The Lord goes through it with him. You know, I remember uh, being on a silent retreat that Nick led. And we've got one coming up, by the way. They're wonderful things. And Nick talked about the fact that over these next hours, you can actually savour things. He said you can smell the coffee and then just take the time to enjoy the taste. Fresh new nausea bread, toasted, lashings of butter. How many are hungry right now? (laughs) And as it came back to me, I thought, Lord, do I actually savour you? I mean, just as far as breakfast goes, twice in the last week I had breakfast without sitting down. And such a con. But do, when do I savor Jesus? When do I actually allow Him to pour His love and life and power into and through me? We sometimes present the gospel and we say, look, Jesus died to give you forgiveness, Jesus died to give you eternal life. And that's true, it's gloriously true. But eternal life and forgiveness are not disembodied products that you can somehow have. Uh, Dan told us about the, the, the vending machine God. You go to the vending machine, press the button, I'll have forgiveness, thank you. Oh, and some eternal life would be nice, thank you very much. And you're still sitting in, no, not at all. No, Jesus didn't die just to give us. He gives us those things by giving us himself. Jesus died to give you himself. When do I savour the one? who gave himself for me. He said, I'm the bread of life. Eat. If you come to me, if you believe in me, you'll never thirst. And I found myself this week and maybe the Holy Spirit speaking to you. When do I savour him? When do I eat? When do I drink? Do you remember what he said about the vine? He said, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, cut off from vital union with me, you can do nothing. I'm going to just share with you the questions that have challenged me this week and trust that they will encourage you. Is a loving, growing relationship with Jesus really sitting at the center of my life? Because the enemy will do anything to distract, to deflect, to take. He will do anything to push Jesus to the margin of my life. In Mark's gospel, there's a verse that I've used for every retreat I've led in my time at this church. Beautiful little phrase. Mark says, he chose 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them. He didn't, he didn't choose 12 to keep them busy. You know, do you know what Jesus wants most of all? To be with you. Because until that, nothing's going to happen. And once that happens, it all follows. Seek first his kingdom and all this is added. Do you have any idea how much he longs to be with you? Let me, play it. Let, let me just do a bit of what if with you as I did it with me this week. What if 
I ask the Holy Spirit to show me the things that make me most aware of Jesus. I sometimes hear people talk and sing about, it's almost like you've got to bring Jesus down or whip him up or somehow find him. (laughs) He said, I will never leave you. He's always there. All we need is awareness. We don't have to get anywhere. Just become aware. Holy Spirit, what are the things that most make me aware of Jesus? Most make me aware of his love. Make me aware of his presence. And then, as I realize what they are, how about if I base my life around those? Make those the first thing. Now, if you've got little kids, I remember Merle and I had twins, the Dipsy Doodle Demolition Duo. It was insanity. Merle's way of reading the Bible was to put it on the bench, put it, and an older woman, thank God, gave her this hint, put the Bible on the bench, put a recipe cover over, read things like Proverbs and Psalms where a little section makes sense, and as you're waiting for the kettle to boil or the bottles to sterilise or whatever, read it then. But in some way, he, he made her the mum of those boys. So he was, he, but he, and he was going to be with her in that journey. As Brother Andrew discovered, he's the God of pots and pans and things. But what is the way in the, the reality of your life that you become aware Jesus is here? See, and, and base your life around that. But don't, I should say that a much better way. Once the Holy Spirit shows me what those things are, Holy Spirit, will you show me how to base my life around them? Because I have no idea. Holy Spirit, how do you want me to base my life? Show me. Let me walk in step with you. And then, Holy Spirit, would you show me the things that deflect and distract? Because ultimately, they destroy me. And when I see what they are, would you give me the grace to just keep turning back to you? Because that's all repent means, turn. And let me turn back to you without beating myself up. I think the Lord really wants me to say to people this morning, you are forgiven. God's promise for forgiveness is absolute if you genuinely, so just turn back, turn back. Don't beat yourself up. For you to refuse to forgive yourself, as C.S. Lewis points out, you're setting yourself up as a higher authority than God. He says you are forgiven. Just keep turning back, keep turning back. And if the Holy Spirit prompts you, as he has prompted me this week, and you find that your fingers start to do this one and close around us, oh no, then I don't have that thing. That thing has me. And he wants me free. I wonder if the worship team would come back. And let's go back to the screen we started with. Paul says, notice those first five words, I have learned the secret. Now in Paul's day, lots of the gurus came around and they would initiate people into the mysteries of spiritual life. And that word learned in the Greek actually means I have been initiated into this secret. I learned it by walking with Jesus. In fact, it's like Proverbs 5.1 where it talks about wisdom, wisdom which is gained by costly experience. Godly wisdom learned by costly experience. Some weeks back, Simon reminded us of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a lawyer highly successful lawyer. He was quite a wealthy man. He was described by one of the leading hymn writers of his day as a man of unusual intelligence and refinement, deeply spiritual and a devoted student of the scriptures. 
With his wealth, he helped build a church. He was a strong supporter of D.L. Moody and other evangelists. And his first little boy died at the age of four. In the great fire of Chicago, most, much of his property sorry, was destroyed. And yet he and his wife used their funds and their time to reach out in love to others who had lost their homes. A fire that killed 300 people. They planned a trip to the United Kingdom and he couldn't go at the last moment. The part, part of the reason for the trip was that Moody and Sankey were having meetings in the UK. The, his wife and his four daughters were on the boat which hit another boat. As many of you will know, the boat sank and all four little girls died. He was taking a boat to join his wife when the captain said to him, we are now passing the spot where the boat went down. And he wrote this to his sister. He said, we passed over the spot where the boat went down. In mid-ocean, the water three miles deep. But I don't think of our dear ones there. They are safe, dear lambs. Were they in denial? Of course not. His wife wrote, one day I will understand. They were, of course, shattered by grief. But we love to sing the words he wrote. Some say he wrote them on that ocean. There's another story that says it was a little later. But whenever he wrote them, we love to sing them. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to know. It is well with my soul. My sin, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Though though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that God has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And Lord, haste the day when our faith becomes sight and his four little daughters come back to The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it's well with my soul. Let's pray together. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? Just be with God in this moment. What's been robbing you of your contentment? What's been diverting and deflecting and distracting? Even more important, how is it that the Holy Spirit is calling you to base your life around all those things that make you most aware that Jesus loves you, has carved you on the palm of his hands? See, contentment is a road, it's a journey. Paul's first attempt at that journey was a miserable failure. He had a grade A education. His zeal was off the scale, but he was murderously angry. He was deeply conflicted. He was anything but content. But Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. And he said, all that matters in my life now is knowing him. I I do one thing. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. Why has Jesus taken hold of you? What's his call to you? He has an amazing destiny that is uniquely yours. Press on. Press on. Contentment is where Jesus is. 
One very wise old saint who seemed to walk in great peace with God was asked why. And he said, well, I always close the gate in life. I grew up on a farm. I always close the gate. What do you mean by that? He said, well, once I've confessed, I close the gate. Don't rehearse. Don't let the enemy whisper to you about sins from which you have long since repented and turned. You've got to be repentance, not remorse. But he said, I closed the gate. And so did Paul. He said, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press on. You are forgiven and free. Let's stand, church, and just be with the Holy Spirit in this moment. And respond as he leads you as we worship together. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.